0: Welcome to BJA Education Podcast. My name's is Riaz and this is part two of the podcast, which is linked to our May 2020 paper, Anesthesia for Hip Fracture Repair. We are joined again uh, by Cliff Shelton and Stuart White. Um, both of these guys are anaesthetic consultants with extensive experience and interest in, um, in this topic. Um, this podcast will explore the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the hip fracture service and some really useful uh, tips and pointers for those of us who are clinically working in anaesthesia and will be providing care to this uh, group of patients. Stuart, you've written a fantastic uh, speciality guideline for managing hip fractures during this uh, pandemic. So I'm just going to ask some questions briefly about the guidelines, because obviously this is a service that needs to continue, that must continue despite the fact that most of us reallocated to itu and that's taking preference but patients like you said continue to fall so just a few things that i want to ask you mentioned earlier about the impact of social isolation on hip fractures do you mind just touching that on a little bit more in terms of what that's done to the number of fractures we're seeing the kind of fractures we're seeing
1: basically we haven't got any uh any data yet i from anecdotally again after sort of March the 30th, there was an the initial fall off of uh, hip fracture patients. We didn't see any for a couple of weeks or so, uh, and we were sort of arguing and arguing. Well, is 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 that because patients are dying outside of hospital? Is it just because they're not going out as much? Is it because they're adopting lifestyle changes, which means they're not falling over quite as much? Uh, and we were sort of arguing about it for for a week or so, and then we've now found that there's actually been a reversion to the mean and we've actually had a glut of hip fracture patients recently so the numbers seem to be about as many as they were and we're certainly three or four a day at the moment.
2: From our perspective in Withersfield Hospital in Manchester my trauma coordinator colleagues have just very helpfully gave me some data today about numbers over the last month and and they've found that as Stuart's said that the absolute number is around what you would expect in any given four week period but we did notice that initial drop off so that suggests that those 50% of patients who may be falling outside in normal circumstances are now maybe falling indoors but the other thing that we were we were talking about in in this particular the context of this particular audit, and really it's a single centre over a single month, and how much you can read into this, I don't really know, is that we've noticed an increase in the number of inpatient falls that, that we've seen, which are normally, thankfully, extremely rare at our institution. But we have been wondering whether the big changes in the way that we're looking after patients in terms of having to cohort and isolate people who are symptomatic may have had some impact on the way that people are, are able to be supervised and cared for closely in, in, in hospital. And I, I think that's something that will, again, come out of the National Hip Fracture Database. But I think we're going to see some some really interesting and potentially quite troubling hip fracture-related consequences of, of COVID.
1: Yeah, certainly we were very keen, the orthogeriatricians and I, that our hip fracture patients should be cocoons. they should be kept on a single ward. You know, there should be very strict criteria as to who was allowed on the ward, who was allowed off the ward, how we were going to test them course all that went to apart because our, our ward um, was basically identified as being a COVID ward so um, all, the, all the COVID patients were then transferred onto that ward and our, our hip fracture patients were unfortunately rather dispersed around the hospital and haven't done terribly well as a consequence of that because they're not getting the orthogeriatric care they were beforehand so but I suspect that we're going to see a, a rise in both say and mortality as well later on in the year
0: the other thing that I was, I've was, i been thinking about is a lot of elderly patients live alone and with social isolation and a lot of emphasis on obviously um, keeping the elderly population safe and family members to not visit to them, to not expose them to the virus. And I wonder if they do have falls at home, usually patients are found by carers or family members. And I wonder if that will have an impact on when we find patients or how they call for help when they do fall. Yeah,
1: I, I think the worrying thing is that um, there may be... a a greater lag time between falling over and actually getting to hospital. I mean, there is socialisation and, and, and people aren't being checked up on, uh, then that, that, you know, that could increase. It may, of course, go the other way. It may be that people are looking out for their elderly relatives, their elderly neighbours a lot more than, than was happening beforehand. The situation in nursing homes is, is worrying to a certain degree. I mean, if, if COVID gets into a nursing home, patients get infected then of course they're possibly more likely to fall over as a result or become unwell and fall over and so it could increase the numbers of hip fracture patients in the future. You know, a, a lot of these things are putative, they're there. We, we, we just don't know the answer to them at this particular moment in time. There's not there's not uh, been time today to come out of Italy, Spain, China to, um, to inform us. Um, so I think it's, it's a case of really watch the space and see what happens. I mean, it's certainly important to collect the data because you know, I can't see COVID, uh, you know, or or the way we deal with COVID changing markedly. Um, we do get secondary, tertiary um, waves of, then. you know, it would be interesting to have that data so that we might manage our patients better in the future.
0: And what impact have you seen off the COVID um, pandemic on the actual hip surgery system of Having a theatre, having a surgeon, having an anaesthetist.
1: So initially, when it, everyone was getting used to donning and doffing PPE and theatre throughput and everything, and we, you know, we, we were, I mean, normally on a good day pre-COVID, we could get four, five hip fractures done between 8:30 and 5 o'clock in, in the afternoon, and we were down to getting two done a day if we were lucky. You know, we're now back up to about four per day, five per day if we're really lucky, but yeah. You know, um, our to eight in the evening so it has been a problem we know that that's been a problem nationally and certainly over this weekend there's a little bit of work going on about developing an algorithm about how theatres should look and how to get patients into theatre and get them through theatre and get them back into the recovery room and out and depending on whether they're high risk for COVID whether they're low risk for COVID whether they've um um, whether they've actually tested positive for COVID or not.
0: Yeah,
2: I think, I mean, we, we've we had similar experiences at, at, at our hospital and we've, we've adopted an approach whereby we have some specific theatres which are sort of ring-fenced for patients who are suspected or confirmed COVID cases. And so that has the effect of sometimes the trauma list op- operates across split sites, you know, so you might have some... COVID asymptomatic people in in one theatre and then later on in the day some COVID symptomatic people in, in a different theatre and that comes with it the logistical difficulties that, that you would expect and I would completely agree with Stuart's point around the, the burdensome nature of, of the PPE stuff and the advice to for example recover the patient in, in theatre rather than taking them out to theatre recovery. So I think it certainly takes longer and really emphasises why it's been so important to step back from most if not all of the services in hospitals because we're coping like it sounds that um, Stuart's coping down in Brighton uh, but we're coping as a consequence of having increased our overall time available to trauma because you can't rush the um, personal protective equipment side of things uh, in order to keep your staff safe and you just need to accept that that's the case and, um, and find a way of working with it.
0: You've highlighted certain things that are different from what the standard care that we're providing in terms of timing of surgery. You've mentioned that the surgery should be done less than 24 hours and also a preference for regional anaesthesia over general anaesthesia. Can you just run through the rationale of, of these recommendations?
1: It, it, it's basically based on, on the So, so the, the stuff that's come out of the National Hip Fracture Database and what they propose. Uh, and what's the, um, and it's sort of a synthesis between that information and what the Association of Anaesthetists in their 2011 guidance, and then what's going to be updated in the 2020 guidance when it comes out shortly. You've just got to get on with it. There's no advantage to having the patients hanging around waiting for their surgery. So even though it's more theatre throughput is more difficult then you've got to try and get the patients through because only in that way you know if, if you get them through surgery quicker then you can rehabilitate them and get them home quick. The whole idea behind preferring regional anaesthesia is all to do with the airway generating procedures but which are obviously far less if you're not having to intubate patients.
2: I think that thing about preference for regional anaesthesia is um, a really important point because if you look further down in the NHS England document you'll, you'll find that it says that pretty much all of the surgical procedures for hip fracture repair are in of themselves aerosol generating and, and that brings with it all of the personal protective equipment implications associated with aerosol generating procedures but one thing I think you need to think about with dealing with these patients is just because one component of the care may be aerosol generating doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all on everything else being aerosol-generating as well. And, and one of the things that we're trying to talk about in team briefs for surgeries at the moment is, is to identify whether any component of the patient's journey through theatres is an aerosol-generating procedure, and if so, does that component really have to be there or, or can it be minimised in some way? So there really is a value in doing a spinal anaesthetic, even if you then have to use the reciprocating saw to do a, a hip hemiarthroplasty, because we seem to be or there seems to be a, a, a suggestion that the total dose of virus that people are exposed to may be important in, in transmission. And if you can do what you can to reduce that, there's a good scientific rationale for avoiding those components of care that may be aerosol generating so I think we've gone the same same way Stuart and uh, even though we're a a general anaesthetic type hospital I suspect our our numbers for this last month will show a sway towards regional anaesthesia for these patients. This
0: this concept of reducing aerosol exposure is this why the surgical techniques have also been adjusted? I
1: think so yeah I mean the surgeons have been really good at you know for example using Suction and wound washouts that you know that, are, that involve minim, minimal aerosol generation, um, changing their, changing the types of procedures that they do, um, changing the types of drilling that they do.
2: Just one thing to bear in mind, though, is that with these changes in in practice, potentially comes changes in things like the duration of anesthesia that you may have to provide. So. Reflecting back on our previous discussion about, you know, knowing the team and knowing the surgeon and knowing the duration of the, the procedure, you might see in our paper, we've got a helpful little table about how long things normally tend to take. If you're coming into the COVID operating theatre for the first time, you need to have a really careful think during the team briefing process about what bits of the procedure might take longer and whether you need to you know, amend your anaesthetic accordingly to give you that extra half an hour or whatever the surgeons might take.
0: And if you were to do a general anaesthetic, is there a preference to using an endotracheal tube compared to a IGEL LMA to, again, minimise aerosol exposures?
2: I don't think there's a paper to read about this. I don't think this has been investigated. But I think the my we've thought about this, you know, where, where I work. And the, the, the argument, I think, is that you certainly get a better seal, a more definitive airway with an endotracheal tube. But you're probably more likely to have a patient who coughs and splutters when they they take it out at the end. And I I think there is an argument for either and probably looking at the patient and asking what what does this patient need is a good starting point um, for that. I think there's an argument if you're going to use um, a laryngeal mask or an eye gel or something along those lines uh, and arguably an ET tube but um, certainly for a supraglottic airway to try to keep the patient breathing spontaneously and thereby avoiding there being positive pressure within the chest. I think that again theoretically would help but we're really talking in the realms of theory rather than evidence and one thing I think we probably all need to be aware of with all of the extra burdens that we've got at the moment of PPE and donning and doffing procedures and so on is to not Stray too far from what you would normally do for a patient and um, inventing a totally new way of doing something at a time like this may be fraught with all kinds of human factors problems.
0: Brilliant well thank you so much guys it, that was super super useful really insightful uh, anything else that you want to add as final remarks?
2: Well I think if I can just reflect on one of my experiences um you know of, of uh, working with a, a likely case of covid in in the hip fracture setting it's it's important to sort of strike the balance between what kit you have in theater as in not wanting to have too much stuff but also having in there what you might reasonably need and one sort of personal story that i think is probably worth sharing is a patient who had a, a spinal anaesthetic from from me for a, a hip fracture repair and ended up becoming unfortunately a little agitated during the uh, course of the the case and so potentially against my better judgment I I gave them a small amount of sedation which certainly made them stay still and then I realized that with the hood and the mask and uh, glasses and everything I was having a really difficult time telling whether they were still breathing or not and I couldn't really hear and I couldn't really see you know And, and so things like thinking ahead you know what if I had to do this what would I need to help me? and so I would have really been grateful to have one of those capnography masks available at, at a time like that and so just just bearing in mind sort of thinking through the process in advance I think is really valuable and one of the things that we found really helpful to use simulation even even in the most simple form of just walking through what if this what if this what if this and helps you to preempt those problems prior to coming across them in in real life.
0: Cliff and Stuart thank you so much for an absolutely fantastic podcast some really important insight into a topic that's extremely important for all of us in anaesthesia great discussion about what to do in the current COVID-19 pandemic and how to move forward with these patients. I would encourage all of our listeners to read the full article which is available on our website bjed.org and thank you again for your time.